0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 23rd, 2022, a Friday. Getting ready for the weekend. Final show, actually, of the week and the b word is back belonging um last month we did a show with the canadian political activist kim samuel she argues she's very much involved with the united nations and a lot of other organizations that the right to belong should be enshrined as a sacred human right uh she has a new book out on belonging finding connection in an age of isolation we all know what that age of isolation is about and we all want that connectivity that connection uh samuel was or is a a rather impressive person and and i was uh, intrigued by her notion of the right to belong It seemed to suggest that we want to belong internally, so we need political organizations like the United Nations to realize that and enshrine it in law. Um, We're looking at belonging today, perhaps in a different kind of way, from the outside in or from the inside out. My guest is a Stanford professor of education and psychology, perhaps social psychology. He has a book out called Belonging, the science of creating connection and build and, and bridging, not building, bridging divides. Um, Jeffrey L. Cohen is a professor at Stanford University and he is just, he's talking to us just down the peninsula. Jeffrey, welcome. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's delightful to be here. So this idea of belonging, you're a, a psychologist a so, um, and a social psychologist, Jeffrey. Are you suggesting that inside us, all of us, there's some kernel, some truth wanting to belong and that the goal of psychologists or educationalists or policymakers is to release that, to get to it? To fulfill that, I
1: would say. I would say that we have a powerful need to belong as a social species. Human beings, in order to survive in the physical world, need to work together. We're pretty helpless and hopeless on our own. And so evolutionarily speaking, we needed to work together to survive. And even at the level of our DNA, we have, quote, learned that when we are alone, we are in danger. And so built into us is a quest to connect. Uh, And of course, infants need to build that attachment in order to survive entering the world as they do helpless. So I would say, yes, it is a fundamental need. And to the degree that that need is thwarted day to day in whatever corner of social life we're talking about, bad things can follow.
0: When you say it's built into us, are you suggesting in in a Darwinian sense, in a evolutionary sense? What exactly does that mean? I would say so. It
1: it is kind of evolutionarily a powerful, evolutionarily built into us, because in order to survive, we needed to work together to overcome physical threats and to, to thrive in what could often be a pretty dangerous and perilous environment. So yes. And the research that I'm thinking of that really demonstrates this very well is some work by John Cassioppo, uh, he passed away several years ago, as well as work by uh, UCLA uh, immunologist Steve Cole, which demonstrates that when we feel alone, when there is a kind of chronic experience of isolation, subjective isolation, we feel disconnected, or genome actually changes. The genes responsible for bodily inflammation actually turn on and prepare the body for physical wounding because at some level, our DNA has been shaped, quote shaped, to anticipate that when we're alone, we're in mortal danger. And so biologically, you see the sort of shadow of precarity that we feel when we're alone. So that's what I would say is the pretty strong, pretty good evidence that evolutionarily we needed to be together in order to survive and and thrive. And and today, when that need is defeated or thwarted, um, it's biologically harmful. It's one of being lonely. This is John Cassiopo again, the pioneering social psychologist. Being lonely, feeling disconnected from the rest of humanity is as bad for us as roughly smoking a pack of cigarettes a day it is one of the most toxic social environmental factors out there. And I do think that we appreciate the importance of toxins like radon, for instance. I remember when, you know, I was when we got our house years ago, we had a whole radon um, assessment and audit and we had to put in a radon uh chimney stack to remove the radon but we we don't really have as strong as an of an intuitive appreciation of these social psychological toxins that are out there in our social environment that make us feel disconnected that make us feel isolated and uh, that make us feel lonely.
0: Jeffrey uh, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau famously wrote uh, man was born free and everywhere he's in chains maybe we need According to at least social psychologists like you, maybe we need to revise that man was born communal or with the need to belong and everywhere he's isolated. Is that the nature of modern life? Do you think in that Rousseau sense that we wow. are alienated that. from our real selves?
1: Well, yeah, man is born free and everywhere he is isolated. He is in chains. We need each other. We need each other to fulfill our potential. You cannot, as my colleague Hazel Marcus says, you cannot be a self by yourself. And we can go down the wrong path of personal fulfillment, I think, by chasing our ambition status, these sort of individualistic goals and forgetting the importance of day-to-day connection i don't know I, you might find this in your own life i find it even i might be despairing over something this paper that was rejected or some some uh, yeah uh you know problem in my life and i just kind of go out and socialize with some people with some friends and suddenly i feel re-energized and it is a kind of um, uh, a, a powerful way in which we get fueled up is through our social
0: interactions what about the politics of all this? I do want to get to the science, Jeffrey? Mm-hmm. That's an area that I have to admit I'm a little skeptical of sure. But The politics of this. Yeah. Um, is your book, do you think implicitly, at least a, a critique of um, 21st century American capitalism with its focus on the individual, with its focus on self-realization?
1: Hmm. I wouldn't go so far there. I mean, as with any system, any ideology taken to excess. Yeah, there's cost to it. Of course, of course. I'm all about balance, all about balance. I think perhaps in some of our cultures, uh, United States being one, we've Maybe tilted a little too far in favor of individualism and forgot the communalism on which much of our country, you know, that, you know, the two, for America, the two values ran hand in hand, co- collectivism and individualism. We had to work together to solve the problems of the new frontier. But uh, what I, I tried, you know, I, I, I do believe that there needs to be political change, institutional change. But m- what I study, what belonging is really about is the the little bits of power that we have in our day-to-day encounters as we try to push the ball forward on system change. Still, all of us need to deal with the hands we've been dealt day-to-day in our social encounters. And I wrote the book as a sort of driver's guide to modern social life. How can we navigate this diverse world of wide-ranging sensitivities, wide-ranging sensibilities, and, and empathic and effective way. And it turns out that there's little things that we can all do day to day that can have a big difference on one another's belonging and one another's ability to reach our full potential.
0: Yeah, and this is what's really intriguing about the book, Belonging, the science of creating connections and bridging divides. You are an unashamed social scientist. and, And what you seem to have done in the book and in your work is explore us in a scientific way, research human beings and figure out what is going to make us more connected and then suggest that that's how we need to perhaps engineer the human condition and perhaps mm. in areas like how we um, how we are educated is that fair mm. you in an odd way, reverse engineering us? Are you suggesting that uh, we are in a way like machines and that we need um, some topping up, some some improvement? <clears throat> I would never liken human beings to machines. Of course, that we're so different
1: from machines. Don't you think that? I, I think we're so different. I, you know, I don't really, I mean, I'm a big fan of sci-fi and I, I, you know, love these shows like Westworld. But you that come up account- with these
0: scientific laws about humans suggesting that they operate in a certain way, which is in some ways not dissimilar from the way in which we make well, sense. Like me, I,
1: I think I may be a little bit different there from the, the the stereotypes many may have of social scientists. I don't really think that the goal is to control human behavior. That I don't. I don't really believe that. I don't think we can. I think it's too unpredictable. What we can do is support people more effectively. The goal is not so much to understand, predict, and control as much as it is to empathize and and understand, and support. And what what social psychology, in my mind, is all about is how to create situations that bring out our collective best. And the best is really hard to define. You never, the the best kinds of so-called social psychological interventions are the ones that often have effects that you can't really predict, because they're unlocking the individuality and the creativity of the people in the situations with you. And, you know, so just to take Just to take one example of many, we have done this work on what we call uh, wise criticism, which is about this task of how do you give critical feedback in fraught situations? And as we know, criticism is a really important way in which all of us learn. You get good, candid feedback, you learn how to do better. One of the problems in a diverse society is that there can be mistrust wherein, say, um, a person, uh, a black student receiving feedback from a white teacher, there's a bit more ambiguity in that criticism. Is it something about my work that they're criticizing? Or maybe it's coming from the stereotype. Maybe they're a little biased against me and it makes sense to just wonder this in a society where these stereotypes about groups have existed for a long time I'm naturally a little bit vigilant as to whether or not the feedback is a genuine reflection of my work or or something that's that's uh, a sign of bias against me or my group well one of the things we found that you can do as a teacher to overcome that social dilemma is to say up front look I'm giving you this critical feedback because I have high standards. You signal, much like a driver turning into a traffic lane. This is why I'm giving it to you. And, and I believe in your potential to reach these standards. And what that does is just given the social reality we're in, it says this stereotype doesn't apply here. You can trust the feedback. I believe in you. And we found that that little message increases the percentage of African-Americans who revise their work. This is in middle school. Uh, from 17% to 71%, a little bit of connection saying, I believe in you, I see you, unlocks the potential that's there in the student, but kind of suppressed under the status quo.
0: You've also done some interesting work, not just with African Americans, but with angry white people, um, which who seem to be the most divisive people these days in America, at least That's my sense. Um, Not, of course, at at Stanford uh, or in Northern California, but elsewhere. Um, Your your, your research um, focused um, on an, an, and I'm quoting you from a big think piece that you wrote: uh, Mm -hmm. a a disaffected Trump supporter who believes that the United States is under siege by illegal immigrants stealing citizen jobs. I mean the, the. you're using that as a kind of metaphor what is your social psychology your reading of belonging um show us about bringing those angry whites into the conversation in ways that will make them included and inclusive rather than excluded
1: Mm. well one of the big themes i think is that what we share as human beings is a is a is a desire for connection that's what we're all about and and that desire when thwarted can divide us so the irony is that the things that we share can drive us apart and one of the things that research suggests is that when people feel excluded or ostracized They have a need to find connection somewhere else. It's like we all need some port on the shore. We all need some port on the shore. And if I feel excluded from my family or from my friends or even just in an encounter, in in, in repeated encounters that I have in my workplace or my school, it makes people a bit more vulnerable to dangerous and even ridiculous belief systems. This has been shown experimentally where if-
0: What do you mean uh, ridiculous belief systems? Dangerous, uh, ridiculous.
1: uh, For instance, conspiratorial beliefs that ascribe complex social problems to malevolent actors working in secret, so conspiracy theories. I'll tell you quickly, one theory, one bit of research demonstrated this by Poon and colleagues showed that when people recalled a time in which they were ostracized, they were subsequently more likely to endorse conspiratorial beliefs than relative to a control group. And one of the reasons is is that by endorsing these beliefs, we can affiliate ourselves with individuals who might provide us with a sense of belonging that we feel lacking. The other line of research that I think is, is really interesting here is by Kruglansky, Ari Kruglansky, who studied extremist and terrorist groups. And uh, what he finds is that one of, the, one of the predictors is feeling like you do not have a sense of belonging or your group does not have a sense of belonging in the wider world. And a lot of times, a lot of times people join extremist and hate groups not because they subscribe to the ideology, but because these groups provide a basis for belonging. In that anecdote that you put up there, C.P. Ellis, who became the uh, Ku Klux Klan wizard, he was interviewed by Studs Terkel, an amazing interview, where um, he describes how he felt like a person who didn't matter. He was uh, you know, facing chronic problems, economic issues, felt disconnected from his family. He felt like a nobody. And one of the things that attracted him to the KKK was that suddenly he felt like somebody. He would kneel before the altar and people would applaud him. It's like, suddenly I'm somebody. And he says, I didn't really believe in the toxic ideologies of these groups, but I felt like someone. And that is borne out in a lot of the research. Of course, these things are complex. I'm not saying that this describes everyone, but it does for sure seem like many of the people who join these extremist groups with, let's say, dangerous belief systems are coming to them because they provide a sense of in-group belongingness. And that's uh, Christian who I'm saying his name right, is another one who's given some very powerful talks about just how powerful this need to belong is and, and how it can lure people into um, groups that really uh, can can do some harm. And that's why I think that belonging is a, very, a really important topic for any sure. society to understand. Sorry, go ahead.
0: Um, Jeffrey, do you, you really rely on science? The subtitle of your book is The Science mm. of Creating Connection and Building and Bridging Divides. You're a social scientist. You continually refer to the research shows this, the research shows that. I have to admit, while I take your knowledge of the research very seriously, I'm always a bit suspicious of people always talk about research because it often suggests there isn't a case. But one of the things that concerns me about these kinds of books and social scientists like yourself is that the social science always seems to confirm your own liberal, progressive version of the world. It never comes up with conclusions that make you uncomfortable. Do you think there's any truth to that? Well, do you have a specific example you have in mind there? like where? What happens if the, yeah. the science suggested that actually we like hating? Hmm. Or um, we're better off divided. Um, Ooh. Ooh. It just always seems as if this, this social science thing? stuff is, is value. I'm, I'm not suggesting you're doing this consciously.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah.
0: I, from the outside, I think if you were on the other side of the political divide and listening or watching to this, you think to yourself, why, why do all these social scientists, why do they all agree with one another? Why are they all finding stuff that confirms their own version of the world is people have to be recognized and people have to be respected.
1: <laughs> well, do you think that people don't have to be recognized and don't have to be respected? I, I'm not a social absolutely. scientist.
0: Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I, I, I probably share real values. But, um... Let's go down this
1: road. Let's go down. I really think this is interesting. So yeah, let's explore this a little bit. I, I think you're absolutely, I mean, in one way you're right. We all have what, Social psychologists call confirmation bias. Not to assimilate confirmation bias to to this this whole kind of confirmation bias, but it is true that yeah we do have a tendency. Our minds are such that it is, as uh, Richard Feynman, the, the physicist, said, is very very easy to deceive ourselves. Very you know, he has this famous dictum: above all else, do not deceive yourself, and you are the easiest to deceive. And so scientists have a sort of methodology in place to check that bias, the scientific method that usually works, but it's not perfect. It's not perfect. And I think, you know, one way, one way I put this is that, yeah, social science is the, to use Winston, to kind of paraphrase Winston Churchill, it is the worst way to study and understand human behavior until you look at the alternatives. I don't really know a better way to get at who we are and what we're about then through Social science, I, I of course, I, I, think there's a big umbrella here. I big fan of the humanities. I'm a big fan of sort of more, sort of even still softer approaches to, to human behavior, uh, in qualitative research. So I think it's a, it's, it is a, it is very, very hard. Social science is very, very hard because people are so complex. But I, I still, and and there are biases that affect all of us. But I still think that. yeah maybe it it, it is it is people do deceive themselves with statistics and data but it's a hell of a lot easier to deceive yourself without them
0: Jeffrey if, if what you're saying is true about belonging and this science of belonging do you think that we socially, educationally politically have a responsibility to and I use this word carefully engineer people so that they feel a sense of belonging. That seems to be the the core of your research in terms of um, not just education, but at your education school at Stanford. Um, Should we be working on people to make them feel as if they belong? Well, can
1: you please define for me what you mean by engineering? I guess I'm having a little trouble with that.
0: Well, engineering means... Uh, in your work, uh, you, you talk about um, operating essentially on, 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 on belonging, on, on, on making people feel as if they belong. And, and a lot of your, mm. your work and your book explains how to do that. Um, mm. It's almost as if we as a species are a social science experiment, which may be true. Who knows? I certainly don't know, but my point is that if we are as, and I, again, I use this word carefully, as as plastic as you suggest, if we can indeed be shaped and reshaped, um, and if our our sense of belonging can be um, engineered by outsiders, Hmm. by educators, should we be doing that?
1: Well, let me ask you a question. Have you had any experiences in your life where you felt like another person helped you to achieve your potential? And what happened in those kinds of circumstances?
0: Did you feel like you were being engineered? Um, That's an odd question. Why'd you ask that question?
1: I guess what I'm thinking. Firstly,
0: why do you reverse the interview? But secondly, it's a very odd question.
1: (laughs) Well, I, I, What I, I guess, so trying to kind of bridge our perspectives here, what I think all this work is about is about how to support people and how to create that, that message of belonging that I think can be very empowering. And I, I think we've all kind of felt that. I know I felt that maybe you felt that. And what the so-called, what the science is all about is how to create conditions, create situations that help people from all as many walks of life as possible to feel more included and more accepted and that to me doesn't feel like engineering that feels like creating the kind of communities and the kinds of places that we want in order to Bring give everyone a place at the table. So just well, to kind well, how, of what, what would you
0: respond to people who say they simply don't want to re- belong? They don't have any they want to have any association with belonging. Well, that's that's fine. If people don't want to belong. That but fine. are you suggesting that it's somehow they're not really telling the truth, that it's against their nature, and if they dug more honestly inside themselves in a in a esque kind of way, then they would find this desire for belonging? I think,
1: generally speaking, there is a, 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 a strong need people have to belong, but I would never ever force anyone to belong somewhere they, they don't want to. And I think a lot, uh, I do think we need some, as I would say, port on the shore, some sense of connection somewhere with something. And And the research does bear this out, that people who feel disconnected, who feel lonely, suffer in terms of. Many more illnesses, cardiovascular disease, stress-related illnesses. Having a sense of connection is one of the most healthy things for us. It's really the research is pretty, is just so is so persuasive here. And then, uh, but that form of connection can come in many ways. It's not like I have to belong at a specific, with a specific group. One of the, uh, one of the bits of work that i find so intriguing is that simply having a sense of purpose feeling connected to a larger cause a cause greater than my to cause bigger than me is is also psychologically and physically beneficial and helps to overcome some of the effects of loneliness when people feel that they have a sense of purpose that can come from volunteering from doing work that they feel is serving some larger social good that turns out to be one of the most healthy things for us. It's, uh, you know, if you could put a sense of purpose in a in a bottle, it would be a zillion dollar industry.
0: Right. I mean, healthy in the sense of what making us live longer. We we did a show uh, yesterday with a Brazilian academic, Lilia Schwartz, on uh, Bolsonaro uh, as a nationalist. He talks endlessly about certain groups of Brazilians belonging, like Trump, like Putin, like so many other of the world's nationalists. Had uh, Elif Shafak, the Turkish writer on the show a couple of years ago, talking about why nationalism is a bad thing. Nationalism being the core ideology, or certainly the core 20th century ideology of belonging. Um, We talked recently with John Judas, political analyst about why nationalism is on the rise. How does nationalism fit into your theory? Because that's the core political vehicle for belonging. Is that, in your mind, a kind of false consciousness, a wrong kind of belonging?
1: Well, people need some sense of community and connection, and nationalism can provide that, I think, if other sources are lacking. Uh, I remember Hannah Arendt. Claiming in her book totalitarianism that one of the reasons that the nazis were able to ascend in a democratic society is that The 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 the, the, the country was so frayed and people had no sort of sense of connection with community they felt lonely and The nazis and the nazi ideology provided this sense of larger meaning and larger belonging that people lack so I do think Think I mean the need to bro- but where did Arendt say that I, I don't remember that in Arendt. I in the origins of totalitarianism
0: and I cited in the book in, in the notes. Um, so is is rent then in that sense almost justifying Nazism? Not that she would ever do that, of course. No, of course not. Of course not. What
1: what I what what we're saying here is that the need to belong and to feel connected to the rest of humanity, to, to a, a larger group is a powerful human motive. And it needs to be channeled well, appropriately.
0: And, and Right. Well, and appropriately- so, that, so that's the key. So, so when you've got, say, I don't know, Trump yeah. and his sense of belonging versus uh, a more inclusive, multicultural sense of belonging, what makes one better than the other? Well, I think
1: that comes down to one's values, one's values, and one of the things that we're doing, I again, the book and the research is really about the things we can do day to day to support one another's sense of belonging and bring out each other's best, and and we're not imposing any kind of point of view or insisting that people belong anywhere. To give you one example of a kind of activity uh science-based activity that promotes this one of the things that we've done in school settings to help children from under-resourced or marginalized backgrounds to feel that they belong is to invite them to reflect on their core values which is just an opportunity to say this is who i am this is who i am in a setting where i might otherwise feel like um Excluded or seen negatively because of the stereotypes about them. And in a series of experiments that have been conducted, it's been found that this little act of reflecting on core values, writing about something that you care about in an otherwise threatening situation, helps people to perform better and achieve at a higher level and to reach their potential. For instance, in these studies, when the students were asked to write about their core values, such as relationships with friends and families and a series of brief writing activities. They were more likely to, uh, they, they received higher grades. And years and years later, they were more likely to go to college relative to students who uh, were in a control group who wrote about less important values. This is not just an example of a small thing we can do to help people to feel recognized and accepted for who they are in situations where they might not otherwise feel that way. Now, in that study, I think it's an interesting study. It's not like we're saying you have to belong in school or this is the only avenue for success. All we're doing is giving people an opportunity to feel, to express who they are and to uh, convey their values in a, in a situation where they might otherwise feel not welcome. So that's the kind of example of the, the, I think it's, That's a kind of example of the things that social psychologists study where it's not a a, uh, sort of high pressure salesperson approach saying you have to belong here. I'm going to try to persuade you. It is creating more welcoming environments so that then people can make the choice sort of unfettered by these concerns of whether they do actually fit in as to whether how much they want to belong and achieve in that setting.
0: There you have it. Fascinating stuff from my guest today, Jeffrey L. Cohen, Belonging, The Science of Creating Connection and Bridging Divides, an important new book on belonging to go on the shelf uh, with Kim Samuel's On Belonging. The B word is back in fashion. Congratulations, uh, Jeffrey, on the new book, your first um, of many, I hope. Uh, oh, what so else uh, would you suggest people read these days? I don't know if you've looked at the, the Samuel book. I think you probably find it pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. um I think that uh, I've read a, a couple books. I'm really enjoying Isabel Wilkerson's *Cast*, which yeah, is about-
0: that's a, an important beautiful, book,
1: beautiful book. And then um, there's another wonderful book that I'm reading that I, I'm enjoying a, a lot. Um, and uh, But it's long. It's long. But it's a, a wonderful book called The Matter with Things uh, by Ian McGillichrist. And it's just a, an amazing tour de force on research, science, philosophy about the nature of human nature. And it just glistens with, with insight on every page. And I'm, I'm very much enjoying that.